Welcome to Econ Talk, Conversations for the Curious, part of the Library of Economics and Liberty. I'm your host, Russ Roberts of Shalem College in Jerusalem and Stanford University's Hoover Institution. Go to econtalk.org where you can subscribe, comment on this episode, and find links and other information related to today's conversation. You'll also find our archives with every episode we've done going back to 2006. Our email address is mail at econtalk.org. We'd love to hear from you. Today is May 20th, 2021, and my guest is economist Anya Shortland of King's College London. She previously appeared on Econ Talk in June of 2019 to talk about her book, Kidnap, which was a fantastic book and conversation. That conversation was about stolen people. Today's conversation is about stolen art and a few other things as well. Her new book is Lost Art, and you're welcome back to Econ Talk. Thank you for having me back. So let's start with the basic problem. You know, let's say you know I'm an art lover, maybe I'm an art dealer or a collector, and you contact me to tell me you have a copy of a Rembrandt. So I'm so excited, but my excitement is going to be tempered by the fact that what you're selling may not actually be a Rembrandt. If it is a Rembrandt, you might have stolen it. And after I buy it, I may not be able to keep it. You write Top prices are only paid when buyers are confident the offered works are genuine and unencumbered. What underpins buyers' trust that artworks are as described and that any problems will be rectified with a minimum of fuss and financial loss? So what we have here is a fundamental problem in trust and in property rights. How does that get resolved in a world with very little government regulation except for uh, if you steal something and you're caught, they will put you in jail. Even if the police would like to put uh, a thief in cha- jail, they probably wouldn't find the time or the resources to do it. So what I find so fascinating about the art market is that it's developed um, really elegant and interesting uh, private governance solution to the problems that you describe. They're mostly reputational solution where people gain status from correctly identifying genuine objects and um, finding reliable provenance information or at least reassuring you that nobody's actively looking for a particular artwork. And because Art has become so expensive at the top level since the 1980s. This is a sustainable system where people who are interested um, in collecting art will pay for these services. Explain what uh, provenance is. It's a word that's going to come up a lot. It's a, it's a somewhat obscure word in English. Um, it, to me, it, it's best described as chain of ownership. Is that a, a good way to describe it? That is a really brilliant question. So if you'd gone to the uh, um, Oxford English Dictionary in the 1970s, it would just have said place of origin. And the idea would have been that you can trace an object back to its master or to um, its archaeological context. Um, But over the last 30 years, the meaning has changed almost entirely, and now it means root of title. It, it means so what? obviously the root of title root will go title. all the back, way back to the to, to the original master, but now people are interested in every little step of the ownership, and they're looking for gaps that 
red flags, like you don't know where it was between 1936 and 1942. The worry there is that it, it may have, say, been confiscated by the Nazis. Uh, it may have been stolen and then resold without uh, compensation to the to the owner who lost it. And therefore, your ownership of it may be either in legal doubt or moral, have moral issues around it. Absolutely right. Yes. And if you're trying to sell a very expensive uh, artwork in New York, then these two things coincide as morally problematic. Um, but um, in New York, your title would be uh, very much in doubt if a, an artwork um, has some impairment. In its, in its chain of title. With antiquities, you'd be worried about them being looted or illegally exported from their country of origin um, after the, uh, the adoption of the UNESCO um, treaties on, on protecting cultural heritage. Another issue that's going to arise in our conversation is statute of limitations. Uh, there's a legal statute of limitations, which is basically after a certain period of time, some prior owners may have lost a claim to an object, but there's also a moral statute of limitations that a court, even though it's past the legal limit, may choose to help someone enforce, right? I found so fascinating about this market is that I'd always thought about law as law, but this is a global market and we're talking about laws. And what might give me of legally valid title in Switzerland or France might well be challenged somewhere else. So yes, the statute of limitation is a period in which somebody has to possess an object in, that they've bought in good faith before true title is transferred to them. So this could be immediately upon purchase as it is in Italy. It could be after three years in Switzerland, it could be, it could be five years, it could even be 10 years. But then the other question is, when does that run from? From the point of purchase, which would be in Europe, or from the point in which you discover, or which the former owner discovers, where the object is. Um, and that is the, uh, the American approach, and particularly the New York approach. So, yes, where you are determines the quality of your title. And interestingly, it's New York that all the highest value art is, is, is being traded um, because people who've got good title want to show it by, um, by, by presenting that particular artwork in New York. So your book is a set of uh, vignettes is not the right word, but they are examples of different kinds of objects that come onto the market and how these problems of ownership and, and trust and provenance are uh, either resolved or not resolved. Uh, we're going to go talk, I hope, about three of them. They're all extraordinarily interesting. It, the book is um, reads a little bit like a detective novel, uh, a set of detective stories, because there's all these twists and turns, and uh, it's usually a lot of hidden uh, stuff that comes to light through digging and detective work. But behind all of them is is an organization called the Art Loss Register, the ALR, the Art Loss Register, the, whose archives you're drawing on. And I'd like you to start, uh, give us the background on that that institution, that organization. Okay, so my background with that institution comes from my previous book, uh, Kidnap, Inside the Ransom Business, where, where I look at a company called Control Risks. 
that uh, created um, an institutional framework for resolving hostage crisis. And uh, one of the founders of Control Risks approached me after I'd written Kidnap and said, you might want to write a book about my other company, the Art Loss Register. And obviously, I was very excited by, by this idea. And um, I realized what the Art Loss Register did was it was creating a hostage situation for stolen art which uh, the founder, Julian Radcliffe, was extremely well-placed to resolve because he had all these skills of negotiating with the underworld. So how do you create a hostage situation for stolen art? What the Art Loss Register has done painstakingly over the last 30 years is uh, to create a database of lost and stolen and looted art. They did this with the backing in 1990 of the major auction houses, art dealers associations, antiquities dealers associations, and interestingly, the art insurance companies and syndicates in, in Lloyd's. They provided the backing for you know, this sort of experiment in, in, in governance, effectively. Um, blue chip backing, which, which was good. And over the last 30 years, Julian Radcliffe has uh, changed the norms around due diligence in the art market so that now it's almost impossible to claim that you've bought or sold something in good faith unless you have searched the art loss register and they have given you a clean certificate of health so that they like the provenance and also that, um, that it's not registered as, as, as missing. If they make a match, then they will alert the former owners. So what, a couple thoughts on that, which, uh, which your description reminds me of. At one point, you make a, a reference to the, the Wild West, meaning a sort of lawless uh, free-for-all that that used to exist in the art market, and I and and what what has happened is is that there's this private sheriff now, this uh, art loss register, uh, where Julian Radcliffe is the is the head of it, and they have, uh, I don't know what the right word is, regularized or set as you say a set of both norms and formal institutions to let buyers and sellers have a set of rules that they're going to play by, not enforced by the government. Um, enforced by an expectation on the part of the players. But I have to say, you know, when you describe it that way, you know, there's got to be some people who who feel like the Art Loss Register took the fun out of the art market. Because it used to be that, you know, someone could show up with a, a, a rolled up canvas under their arm and say, this is an obscure uh, Rembrandt that I found in my cousin's attic. And... Um, the Art Loss Register is going to find out, yeah, either it was stolen in 1958 from somebody, or they're going to show they're going to say it's it's a it's a forgery. But of course, there are a lot of people who like buying forgeries and believing that they're real. Not art museum directors; they they don't they try to avoid that. But I assume some private collectors aren't so thrilled. I don't know. It just it just strikes me. It, you know, there's a line that um, I forget what movie it's from, but that you know that con con artists are successful because. People enjoy being conned. Takes two to 
to to have a, a hoax or a, a, a con job. And um, I just wonder if there's some uh, there's some uh, loss of excitement here. What do you think about that? I think there is a loss of excitement, indeed. But we're also talking about huge amounts of money here. Sure. And if you're playing with a lot of money, it's not fun to have huge amounts of risks uh, associated with it. So here we're talking initially, at least, about the very top end of the art market. And what collectors are looking for is is a sound financial investment, but also something that confers status to them. And there is no status in something that's ethically or morally questionable. So people want ethically acceptable titles. They also want portable titles. Um, If you're super rich and you've got properties dotted all over the world, the last things you want to know what want to happen is for customs to um, <laughs> seize your property, and you'd also be hugely embarrassed if you come out as a big philanthropist, and then the Metropolitan Museum of Art says, "Well, thanks, but no thanks, Mr. Rockefeller. Um, this is not. We couldn't possibly exhibit this." So it's the collectors that said, "We need something that we're sure about." Then you get all these investigative journalists starting to crawl all over the auction houses in the late 80s and early 90s, saying, you basically glorified fences. So it's the auction houses. They, 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 they realize that there's going to be this avalanche of very bad publicity coming their way. They know, they know where they've cut the corners. So they want to be proactive and say, yes, that was so 1980s. So in the 1990s, they're desperate for a solution. Uh, And then there's insurance companies who've got art prices going through the roof. We all know that thieves, uh, criminals are are, are rational individuals. and prices go up, so do the incentives for committing art theft. So they're three big, powerful interest groups that are all looking for a solution. Interesting, they're all looking for slightly different solutions. Um, the, the idea of the insurers that you go out there and salvage what has been lost doesn't sit easily with the cosy relationships that uh, auction houses have with their consigners whose Id- identity they wish to protect. So, so there, there are subtle differences in what they actually want, but they all know that they need to move to create a product that the highly financially powered art investor wants to buy, and that requires good title and authenticity. So just to clarify a couple of words, a fence uh, is someone who is uh, a reseller of a stolen object. So a thief doesn't often resell the object. The thief sell, Well, the thief sells it once to someone who then represents it perhaps as something else. Um, maybe my... My grandfather found it in the attic. I don't remember when, or um, uh, someone dropped this off at my house. Uh, obviously, being a fence is is uh, morally and legally problematic. Um, so, a an auction house that accepts a piece of stolen art is acting like a fence, and it's not good for their reputation and can lead to, to legal legal issues. The other term, Absolutely right. The other- and, and the problem, the problem was that, that, that Sotheby's in particular was caught basically laundering stolen antiquities and 
if they didn't know it completely, then they should have known. And, and, and that created, they, they knew that this, that this story is waiting to break. So, so they wanted to make it decisive, uh, break with that past and say, no, now moving forward, we have a solution. The other term you used is cosigner, which is a little bit, uh, it, it's not the usual term in English. It's C-O-S-I-G-N-O-R, the person, consigner, the person consigner. who consigns the object to the auction, the, the, the merchant who's going to then sell it to a wider audience. So a thief, to take the worst possible case, a thief uh, approaches a auction house uh, and rep- misrepresents the origin of an item, which, they, of course, they have an incentive to do. And, of course, so does the auction house if they're not caught, in theory, uh, because they'll get a bigger price if it's uh, thought to be authentic and real. The the um, consigner will get a higher price for the object, and the auction house will get a higher fee if it goes for a large amount of money. It's believed to be authentic, so they have a mutual interest in if if they're not caught, <laughs> but but they also have a different interest if if um, if it turns out it is actually inauthentic and it's discovered. Um, the other thing I want to point out, which is just fantastic, is that. You can't just search the database of the art loss register. So if you steal something and you wait 10 years uh, and keep it underground, under wraps, and then you say, gee, I wonder if anyone noticed. You can't just get log into the art loss register and find out. Explain how the art loss register is actually used as a database and who actually uh, looks at it. And then what happens when requests are made that maybe aren't so kosher? <laughs> yeah, that's an interesting one. So. Anybody can check the Interpol database of uh, stolen art and anyone can um, look at the register of, of, of looted art um, for, for, for Nazi and Holocaust era looted artifacts. So if, if you think there might be a problem with, with, with your piece, you can check whether it has been reported um, to, to those registers. If you try and make a similar request to the um, art loss register, they want to know who you are and why you're interested in this particular object. So if it comes from a reputable dealer or auction house, then there is clearly no problem. However, if it's the private individual who wants to know what's going on, the art loss register will want to know a huge amount of details about who you are and um, which door the police should be knocking at to start (laughs) interrogating and, 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 and looking for this. So um, in my book, there is an example of, of a Francis Bacon painting uh, that was stolen from Madrid. And uh, there the thieves um, started to investigate with the Artlas Register whether there might be a problem reselling it. And um, yeah, very quickly, the Spanish police were able to arrest them. And it's that public-private partnership that the Art Loss Register has built with police forces around the world that makes them um, yeah, an extremely powerful force for, for deterring theft, which was what the insurers were looking for in the first place when they um, created or helped to create um, the Art Loss Register. One more thing about the insurance companies I don't want to miss. Um, if I own a extremely valuable art object, um, say a Cezanne, uh, and I insure it, and we're going to talk about a Cezanne in a minute, um, French Impressionist, right? Um, 
if I insure it and it gets stolen, they compensate me for my loss. And let's say 25 years later, the painting shows up in an auction and is discovered to be my stolen painting. The art, the insurance company owns that painting because they paid out the uh, payment to me in my insurance. However, is it a custom or, or a contractual thing that they will give me back my painting as long as I give back the money with interest, but not the real value? So if the painting is worth $10 million when it's stolen and in between it appreciates to thirty. I can get my painting back for $10 million plus interest. I don't have to give them the $30 million it's now worth to them as the actual owners. And is that custom? Where does that come from? So very few people are actually able to insure their paintings to their full value anyway. So probably your $10 million painting was only insured for a million because you weren't really able to afford the premium on, uh, on, on a $10 million painting. Um, so, yeah, the, the insurers will only seek to regain what uh, they paid out in compensation because for insurers, it's also a reputational game. Insurers are getting quite a lot of negative publicity already and they don't want to be seen to be uh, benefiting from crime. So the Art Loss Register was made so powerful because of the insurance company basically giving them their back catalogue of everything that had ever been stolen and was still sitting on their books. Yeah. So they started off with the, with the uh, uh, IFAR um, lost art alerts which from the 1970s Interna International Foundation for Art Research in, in New York. They started off with, with that, but but getting the back issues of, of, of all things that had ever been reported stolen to Lloyds and had been, uh, been, been paid out by, by insurers because he gave them a, a, a real big starting catalogue of things. It gave them real credibility. Do you know how many items are in the art loss register? Over 700,000 as of the end of last year. So those are all and unresolved theft? Yes, uh, theft and, and, and incidents of looting and uh, expropriations, um, things that got, got lost from, from uh, Jewish collections and it's not entirely clear exactly how they made their way out of the family's hands and, 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 and where, where, where they are now. But yeah, over 700,000 um, uniquely identifiable objects, um, watches, uh, paintings, sculptures, um, anything, family silver, any, anything that is uniquely identifiable, that's the thing. So you've got to match a picture um, of, the, of the object with its, um, with, with, its, with its current state. And that's also sometimes interesting and difficult because um, the not-so-subtle hand of the restorer might have um, obliterated a lot of the characteristics. Like the serial number of a watch, say, hypothetically. Yes, possibly. Though why somebody would want to buy a watch with the serial number scratched out, that rather suggested things very wrong. Yeah, oops. Um, so let's talk about some of the actual cases. Um, let's start with the, um, the Backwin, if that's how you pronounce it, Backwin family. Yes. Uh, they come home one day to discover that their house has been burglarized Seven paintings are gone. 
and there's no sign of forced entry. Is that was that correct? That's right. So there's 1978 in, in, in Massachusetts. Uh, this is a family that just has an art collection from from the uh, from their parents who used to just travel to Paris in the 1920s and 1930s and were friends with the artists, and they just brought back lots of impressionist art directly from the studio, just just for enjoyment. And the family just always enjoyed them. And sitting in the dining room, everyone loved looking at them. But they didn't really have a massive security presence, and uh, the, the, the wife just just said, "Well, everyone knew the the, the the house key, the back door key was was under the ceramic frog by the steps." So, note to self: note to self, don't use the ceramic frog. Use something else. <laughs> <laughs> He's under the doormat. Yeah. <laughs> but um, yeah, so they're they're. Seven paintings were, were, were stolen, and, and, and one of them, uh, a painting um, by, by Cezanne, uh, worth a million probably at the time, but, uh, but much, much more nowadays. And, yeah, they just disappeared. They didn't turn up on the art market um, at all for more than 20 years. and. Um, it was only in, in, in 1999 that uh, the Cezanne appeared in a strange context where somebody was looking for transport insurance to move it from Russia to, um, to, to, to Switzerland. And again, transport insurance for art is something that really only gets insured at Lloyd's of London. And it was the Lloyd's of London art insurers that had helped to create the Art Loss Register. So they ask the Art Loss Register, can we insure this for transport? And the Art Loss Register says, no, they're the backward, that's the backward Suzanne. Put us in touch with the people who, who asked you that question. And then what happened? Well, the person who'd asked for the transport insurance was this middleman who said he wasn't really sure who his principals were, but believed them to be a Russian institution. And Russian institution doesn't sound so good. Anonymous Russian institution doesn't sound so good. That that sounds like possibly a Russian mafia. They didn't seem that surprised when they were told that there was a problem. They said they got it in settlement of a debt. But... It just got worse and worse because it turned out it wasn't just the Cezanne, but it's that we've got another two paintings that we're also got. And they turned to be for the Backwin Hoard. And another two. And finally, all seven paintings were discovered to still be in the same people's hands. And this is not a set of paintings. So if there had been a number of good faith purchases over time, you would have thought that would be split up. So it really sounded that whoever was in holding these paintings, in possession of these paintings, was very close to the original thief because otherwise they would have been split up. And, yeah, it, was, it wasn't really possible to get anywhere close to making a deal with an anonymous Russian institution because... There's so many red lines in this business, and, and, and paying criminals is obviously a no-no. But 
even worse than paying criminals, is giving money to organized crime or a possible terrorist group. And, and, and an anonymous Russian institution was just a no-go. So the issue was that once the backwinds found someone and once the art loss register discovered someone who had access to these paintings, they wanted them back, right? And the person who has them is anonymous at this point. They have a representative who's been this person inquiring on their behalf about transport insurance and other things. But at this point, uh, a negotiation begins, correct? Or is it, is it a legal issue? Or both? It isn't a legal issue at this point because nobody knows where the paintings are or, or, or who who is in possession of them. So everything is completely in, in, in the air. But what, what they're saying is basically, well, we recognize that we've got something on our hands that will be difficult to sell. What are we going to do about it? Is there going to be some sort of finder's fee? Is there some way of coming to a commercial arrangement where this 15, 20, 25, $30 painting somehow goes back to the original owner, but whoever's got it now also gets something out of it? So the art was registered in general looks towards some sort of amicable settlement, but clearly you can't do an amicable settlement if your counterpart is, 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 is criminal. So the person representing the Russian institution is claiming it's not a crime. They, they, they got these paintings in, in good faith through a deal of, of some kind of, as you say, a debt settlement. But now they'd be happy to sell them for the right price. Uh, the problem, of course, is that – and this is just what's so fascinating about this, this uh, product and this market – you don't know whether they're really the seven paintings that were stolen from the back ones. They could be forgeries that are just that a clever person is now has recreated to make a lot of money. You can say, well, I've, I've got the Cezanne. It, it, of course, it's it's appreciated, but I don't need all the full value. I'll, uh, my my clients will accept a two million dollars and that person then would this middle person would get a finder's fee, as you suggest. Uh, so they, one of the challenges was figuring out whether these were the actual paintings themselves or forgeries. And how was that, how was that achieved? Creating, splitting a, a, an artwork into a perfect provenance, which can sell a forgery and an artwork that will stand on the as quality alone is, is, is a very well-known way of um, uh, art fraud. So, yes, the, uh, the art loss register and the backwinds were very worried that they might be palmed off with a, uh, with a copy. So while they couldn't really talk about ransoms with, the, uh, with this Russian institution, um, what they did talk about is what, how are we going to authenticate this particular painting in the first place? And um, you can imagine that this, this was quite a problem because the, the Russian institution people said, well, you just send an art expert to us and we'll show them the picture. And Julian said, well, we can't do that. We can't send the impressionist specialist from Sotheby's or Christie's into the lair of the Russian mafia. Why didn't you bring it to London instead? 
obviously they were not going to take them to London where they could be seized at customs and would most likely be seized um, at, at Sotheby's. So there were all these trust issues that seemed to be completely difficult, uh, impossible to, to, to solve until everyone realised, well, there are some jurisdictions that are supremely relaxed in these matters. And if we're talking about trades between consensual, consensual trades between adults, it doesn't matter whether the things are stolen. So they said, well, where are we going to go? They thought about Monaco first, and then they decided that Switzerland was actually um, the perfect place for authenticating the, payment, uh, the, the, the painting or all of the paintings um, because you'd have access to all these Swiss banks, so all the finance would be, be absolutely nicely uh, tied up and it would be very safe for everyone to go to a bank vault in Geneva and customs would not get involved in this at all. So, so that was what was decided. And um, when so- they asked the... Uh, intermediary to put the Swiss lawyer off the holders and in, in touch with them, uh, the, the, the lawyer came in and said, oh, actually, the paintings have been in Switzerland all along. This uh, Russian story was just a story to, it was just a subterfuge. So don't worry about the Russian mafia. Everything is completely above board and everything is in Geneva already. So so they meet in Geneva, but you can see the... Um Still some problems. So uh, it actually, the painting gets passed out through a car window for a brief, how did that happen? What happened? Yeah. So again, there was still a lot of trust issues to be resolved. Um, They decide that they still need some statement of good faith. They still have to make sure that the holder is not the thief or connected to the thief. Um, They look at, the evidence that is provided is just so weak that they said, oh, we can only give you a very small percentage, maybe 5% um, off the value of the Cezanne um, for, uh, uh, as your finder's fee, as everyone was calling it at, at, at the time. And then the question is, well, about 5% of what? And they said, well, Sotheby says it's worth $15 million. Um, well, unfortunately, at around the same time, the Whitney family is selling a very similar Cezanne, and that sells for, for, for 40 million or something like that. So they said, well, why is the Whitney family Cezanne so much more expensive than the backward Cezanne? And if you're talking about a, a 5 or 10% of 15 million or 30 million or 40 million, it really begins to matter. So, they just, they just really couldn't find a solution to, to, to all of these problems. So ultimately what they decided was to transfer the ownership of the six paintings, sort of minor paintings from the backwinds to this anonymous holder in exchange for the Cezanne. And indeed, yeah, they converge on this lawyer's office and wait for hours and hours and hours, drumming their fingers on the table until eventually somebody appears uh, with, the, with the contracts. They sign the contracts, they go downstairs, and then this limousine with the dark windows pulls up and somebody hands out this wrapped package. They go back to the lawyer's office and the uh, Sotheby's experts say, yeah, this is it, this is the real thing. And, 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 the, and the deal is done. 
And how that turns out, we're not going to spoil. I encourage you to read the book, but the uh, the denouement, the ending of that story, and what it turns out, who that middle man was, and um, how he, uh, he became the owner of that painting is quite quite extraordinary. It involves um, a murder and um, a lot of uh, betrayal of the um, of a lawyer's ethical code, <laughs> but. But that eventually, um, the the backwoods get the Cezanne back, uh, and but they decide not to keep it, correct? Because That's they right. don't want to pay the insurance that it, it, it it's worth about thirty. They think it's probably worth thirty million dollars, and the insurance is going to be thirty thousand dollars a year. Uh, they're not wealthy art collectors per se. They've already spent an enormous amount of legal fees to, to prosecute this. Uh, attempt to get it back in the once 1999 came along uh this person had this uh they became aware that it that, that someone knew where they were the paintings so they decided to sell it it sells for 30 million correct that's correct yes and and so, wh- who buys it and where is it now uh, it's been it's been it's been sold twice since so the last time it sold it was was much closer to 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 60 million I, I don't know who's got it at the moment, but yes, this is an extremely valuable painting that the family just felt that it would change their lives from that laid back, we're just enjoying our art, we're living with it, and, and, and people come and go in our house. They, they just didn't want that. They just wanted to, to, to enjoy art and presumably they bought something some, some, something else. But yeah, so it went went up for for auction. So this um, this question of enjoying art, I want to talk about that, but I want to do it in the um, in the context of uh, another story in your book, which is um, the Turner painting. A person shows up with what purports to be a uh, an original Turner, a British artist, um, a seascape, and um, what happens? What's his uh, What's his plan, and what actually happens? There are lots of stories of sleepers. It's 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 a dream of a lot of people that the find in the attic turns out to be a, a genuine Rembrandt or a genuine Turner. And um, authentication is a big business. And uh, art is basically a, a, a credence good. And some people say it's a meta credence good in the sense that nobody might ever be able to prove definitively whether something is or, or, or isn't a Turner. So... This, uh, this, this, this man um, goes around and spends a huge amount of money soliciting expert opinions on this Turner, and he gets a really mixed bag of, um, of, of endorsements and people who just basically give him the runaround and say, yeah, it's a very good copy, or it looks like a student's work, or yes, it's pretty convincing, but it's... it's it's on a coach door panel. That's not what Turner would have done at the time. But he gets he gets the scientific analysis. He gets the fingerprint analysis. Explain he gets that. Every connoisseur. Explain that there's a fingerprint on the painting that could be Turner's. Indeed, it has uh, ten areas that look very similar to, to Turner's left thumbprint. Um, <laughs> however. <laughs> To, for it to stand up in court, there'd have to be 16. So it's it's suggestive, but nothing quite quite matches up. Anyway, so the, the only reason that the art loss uh, 
register gets involved as uh, when this man decides that he's very close to making big bucks on this. And rather than rushing into a sale, um, he goes to what's effectively an an upmarket pawnbroker to borrow several million pounds um, with this painting as collateral. And uh, very wisely, the pawnbroker decides to check out the provenance with the the art loss register. Uh, It's not registered as stolen, but the ALR's staff don't like the provenance at all. Um, They're only, um, it's only hearsay and uh, the the, the documents that that, that are submitted look so fake that they go back to, to the pawnbroker and say, well, this person says he's bought it from somebody and we have no reason to suspect that this person even exists. And that person was supposed to have had it from a country house sale, but it's not in the catalogue of that country house sale. And the country house sale wasn't actually with a family that he says it was from anyway. So there was just nothing that matched up in, in, in that trail of provenance. So they, they, they said to the poor broker, we wouldn't touch this. And they said, well, it's worth four million. Surely this can't go wrong if we just give them a million. But of course, if it's not a turner, it's worth 800 pounds. So, yes, it went rather badly for the pawnbroker in the end um, because once Sotheby's found out how ropey the provenance was, they decided that they'd rather not put their name on the line because, again, it's a reputational issue. If they're going to sell it as a turner, yes, it would fetch $4 million. But if they'd sell it as a turner question mark, then probably nobody would be interested. And, and for they, them, the risk is just too big. And if they sell it as a Turner exclamation point, and it turns out that almost everyone agrees it's not a Turner, it's really awkward. Uh, you mentioned the three tests. For those at home who are thinking of forging a painting, uh, here's the three tests you have to um, – or passing off a painting is legitimate that isn't. The three tests are provenance, the chain of, of ownership. Uh, what you call autograph and materials. So explain those those other two, the autograph and materials, and how that played into the Turner uh, discussion. There is a lot of art historical research. Basically, um, you, if, if it's a genuine masterpiece, it should leave some sort of trace in the historical record. If it's a, if it's a genuine Turner, somebody would have bought it from Turner or out of the Turner estate. It, it would have been traded several times uh, over its uh, over its history. So it should just keep popping up, and uh, the the people who are working uh, with the, uh, the 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 owner of this not quite Turner, um, they were trying very hard to to try and find. Um, times when it might have been sold and just every time they came up, it wasn't such and such a sale. The art loss register turned around and said, yes, but the picture that was sold at that sale is actually the Metropolitan Museum of Art. That provenance is not available for this particular seascape. And anyway, it's a portrait and not a landscape. <laughs> so um, then you've got the, um, the, the the connoisseurship. So these these are people who studied 
um, Turner in, uh, or, or a particular artist in, in great detail and they're looking for brush strokes, they're, they're, they're looking for techniques, they're looking for particular colour combinations, etc. They used to be the people whose, whose word and reputation underpinned the art market um, but they've lost a lot of credibility when the third pillar came into into um, into play, and that that's the uh, materials scientist coming in and saying, "Well, would the material that was being used to create this artwork have been available to the artist at the time?" So, if you have a a, a Turner that uses titanium white that's only been available since the 1920s, then Clearly, there is a problem. So if you want to pass something off as a Turner, you would have to source materials um, that were available to Turner at the time, and ideally some of the paints that he's known to have used and particularly have, have liked. But that, of course, means that contemporary paintings, paintings by his students, painting by art students um, at the time uh, this painting was exhibited, um, they could have also produced it. So the material scientists can tell you it's wrong, but they can't give you a definitive attribution unless you really have the, th the right thumbprint um, in, the, uh, in, in, in the painting and um, a, a perfect match can be made. Uh, so this turned out to be almost certainly a forgery, right? Well, without a provenance, it doesn't have a hope. The connoisseurs are divided. There are enough of the connoisseurs who, who give it a clean bill um, of, of, of health. And there was nothing that the material scientists found that was of, of, of the wrong period. So it does have a chance. And in but theory, but go ahead. Not, not without a provenance that will get past the art loss register. And um, so the reason. So far, none has been offered. So it's unsold. As far as we know. It's unsolved and it's unsolved. And uh, we don't really know where it is either. The puzzle I have about it is that if you had a thumbprint, th that would be a deal killer if it, if it wasn't anything like Turner's. Is the implication here that, that somebody studied Turner's thumbprint from other sources and found someone with a similar thumbprint and put it on there as a, to make it look seem more authentic? What's going on there? Um, so, so the idea is it's a left thumbprint, and that's not a fingerprint that is very off. It's, it's the, the only other left thumbprint is, is on Turner's paint box. So he didn't paint with his left thumb. So the most likely um, source of this painting is uh, Francis Sherrill, who was Turner's student. And it could have been something that Turner could have picked up in the studio while the paint was still wet. I say, Francis, it's looking quite good. Or, Francis, try again. And it was put down again. But how cool is that? Wouldn't you want to have a... You know, I, I, I've told a story a long time ago, the time I sat in a chair that Adam Smith probably sat in, and how relatively exciting that was. Uh, wouldn't you want to own a Turner that... Uh, that Not a Turner, a Cheryl. Is it Cheryl, the student? Yeah. Uh, wouldn't you want to own Turner's student's imitation of Turner that has Turner's actual thumbprint? That would be pretty cool. That's not worth $4 million, but it's worth more than $40, isn't it? That's, 
that is that is correct. Unfortunately, it wouldn't quite cover the debts or the amount of money that has uh, been spent on, on 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 trying to to get the sleeper accepted, and 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 that's 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 really the main problem. This is this is this is only going to end well for, uh, for 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 the person who's, who's, who possesses it if it is actually accepted as a multi-million dollar turner. And yeah, it's, it's these high stakes. It's, it's, it's also a sad story because clearly people's hopes and ideas are, are, are really bound up in this, in this painting. The part that I find interesting is what I was alluding to earlier, and this really comes from my wife insight. We were talking about your book last night. And the, it's interesting that if it's not a Turner and it just looks like a Turner, it's not worth anything. Uh, in other words, I mean, if, if somebody did, if somebody found a score for Beethoven's 10th, an alleged score for Beethoven's 10th symphony, and let's say they, it's, a, it's a forgery. They wrote it. It's not really by Beethoven, but they're pretending they found it in their attic in, in uh, wherever. And like the Hitler diaries. What? Like the Hitler Correct. diaries. Right. And they said, this is the real thing. And, and it turns out it's a terrible fraud. A person, it's, it's the wrong ink. You know, Beethoven didn't use that kind of paper. He didn't make his quarter note rests that shape. And everything goes wrong. But it's a magnificent piece of music, right? It's not a Beethoven, but it's a great piece of music. You'd say, well, I'm happy to have it. I'd love to have a Beethoven's 10th Symphony if, even if it weren't written by Beethoven, if it were, quote, in his style, which would, of course, be part of the, the uh, autograph part of your test, right? It'd have to be – it couldn't sound like a, um, like a, a Mussorgsky. It would have to sound like a Beethoven. But wouldn't you like to have Beethoven's 10th? And yet somehow an extra Turner or an extra Picasso is not worth anything unless it's actually by the master. It's a strange thing about art, I think. Am I, am I that's, wrong? That's deliberate. That's very deliberate. You're trying to keep the uh, supply absolutely rock steady on whatever, 57 paintings, only three of which ever make it onto the market once in a blue moon. That's, that's what creates value. Once you start diluting that and start admitting more and more paintings into the oeuvre of these artists, um, every single one of these other paintings will become less valuable. But if the 58th one is not by Turner, but is instead by um, Joe Schmo, but it's beautiful, I happen to like Turner, wouldn't I be happy to have a fake Turner? Why is a fake Turner lots worth of people are. Lots of people are. And, and, and the thing is, lots of people used to love having copies of yeah. famous paintings. Sure. Yeah. So, so there, there was lots of contemporary copies. And the, um, the last Leonardo discussion was all about, is this the original Leonardo or is it one of 15 workshop copies that Leonardo's students made? Um, but it's only worth $450.3 million if we believe it to be the only Leonardo on the market. My point is that that's, there's something a little bit weird about that. You know, I, I think everyone recognizes that there's a subjectivity to art, but the particular aspect of subjectivity of uh, this is not really drawn by the hand of the master, but I could still enjoy it in theory just as much. Yes, but it's, art, art is not about being pretty. It's about right. status. 
Yeah. And the status is bound up in owning something that nobody else has got. And that is the last Leonardo, not just one of 15 or one of 500 copies of, of, of the last Leonardo. And yes, and if, if, you, if you start diluting markets, um, like Cycladic sculptures, which used to be really exciting and, and, and a big collector's dream, but they're also easy to fake because you can sculpt marble and the marble is whatever age the marble is. You can't tell when it has been sculpted. And, and the market just collapses. So, yeah, authenticity is, 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 a, is a big thing um, for, for, for auction houses, which are commission-based, to protect the market for the really rare objects by making it super difficult um, for other people to come in. And then you also have academics and museum curators who, who, who also don't have any reason to dilute the oeuvre of a master and, and change our idea of history. Yeah, I think um, maybe you know, I, I saw um, Michelangelo's David in Florence, uh, which was a great thrill. Um, I'm not a very, I'm not a serious student of art, but it's, it's 17 feet tall. And it's sculpted out of one piece of marble, and it's utterly magnificent. Uh, there's a copy of it in um, in a museum in England. What's the name of it? Um, a Victorian Albert. Yeah, yeah, the Victorian Albert. They've got a room. Yeah. They've got a room of just stuff that, you know, famous things they've copied. So you can see them. You don't have to go to Florence. You don't have to go to, to Greece or, or wherever. And it's pretty cool. Yeah, but, the Ashmolean is full of plaster casts, but yeah. that's what students use to, yeah. to, to, to train their eyes. So. I, I don't think the David, I don't remember if the David's actually, I think there's a David there, and I think it's, maybe it's not 17 feet tall. Still pretty cool. Give you the idea of it. Uh, I wouldn't man, mind but having you, one. You don't, you don't get the status from a no. plaster cast no. that you get from. From, from from the original, and that's what the market is is is, is all about. And it's it's about creating institutions that protect that. And it's a very dynamic game because the better you get at protecting it, the better the fakers and forgers get at, at, at trying to circumvent your tests. And so, with the with the advent of the art loss register, roughly thirty years ago, right? Um, how has that changed the art world? In do we have any measures of how it's changed it in terms of in theory, it should increase the the value of, of paintings because that are authenticated and are, are known to be of, of certain provenance, autograph materials, and so on. Um, but it's had other impacts as well. So talk about what how this private institution has affected this formerly Wild West market in um, in art. So what the art was. Register has done is, is, is held out a hope to, to the victims of, of theft and looting and source governments whose antiquities have been stolen and, and, and looted from public museums and major archaeological sites, um, that they might be reunited at some stage in the future with their, uh, with their, with their possessions. But it's also made it a lot less attractive to, um, to to steal art in the first place. So knowing that you find it very difficult to sell art on the open market, you, you do have to sell it at a boot sale or a car boot sale or 
That's a trick. On the internet or, 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 or some way where you're not going to get the full value of it makes it less interesting to target art in the first place. So it's made art more insurable and it's made art more enjoyed because knowing that it's not worth stealing, we can tour it around the world. There are not enough Bond villains to create a market for stolen art. So there is a big gap between what you can get on the open market and on the grey and, 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 and underground markets for stolen art. And so that differential um, between something that has a good provenance and something that has an impaired provenance um, creates the, the, the possibility for what, what I call amicable resolutions, negotiations. Um, it's actually relatively rare that they find art, the Art Loss Register finds art that's still in the hands of the criminal or somebody closely related to the criminal. What mostly happens is that they find something that's being put up for sale by a good faith buyer who's had it for 10, 20 years in their collection or they bought it five years ago from somebody else who's had it for 10 years in their collection. So it really is about recognising the current possessor's uh, moral rights and they might also be the legal owner of an artwork, at least in their jurisdiction. And recognizing the, the, the moral claim of the previous owners and, and, and somehow creating yeah, a level playing field for a, for a negotiation. And, and very often that works extremely well, particularly at the top end of the market where people say, yes, this would be so worth so much more if I could sell it in New York rather than in the Freeport in Geneva. So they, they volunteer uh, to, to, to come to uh, a negotiated resolution. And also at the bottom end of the market, because social norms have shifted and people do recognize and, 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 and support the idea that certain historic wrongs can and should be righted um, through restitution, but, but not outright restitution and, and, and saying, okay, we'll share in this and 30 70, 50, 50, whatever you do. A private governance solution actually has a much, it just seems fairer to both sides. And it's also hugely cheaper than trying to go to court. And courts will eventually come up with what is supposed, what will look like an unfair judgment. It doesn't belong to A or B. It does actually belong to both. So, I think that's a really interesting and, 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 and elegant solution to a very tricky property rights problem. That's a really nice point. Again, emphasizing you're not talking about the actual thief trying to fence the article themselves, but a good faith buyer who innocently bought something that wasn't owned by the seller, unknown to the buyer, uh, now tries to resell it. There's there's a moral ambiguity there. Um, and the private solution is what's the right word nuanced uh negotiated um shared as you say whereas the public solution is often going to be a one size fits all an all or nothing 
Uh, it's awkward. You could have arbitration, uh, I think, for in a public setting, but but typically with the ownership is either A or Bs. Uh, it's not split. It, it could be in a divorce, right? In a divorce, property gets resold and then divided up. It's not like necessarily one person gets all the this piece of this item and, and the other person gets zero. It's often one person gets part of the monetary value, even though the other person might get the item itself. But a similar thing is happening here. And I guess divorce court is a, is a better model for this than, say, uh, a normal court of justice where ownership is then a one or a zero. That's, that, that's correct. And the, the beauty of the art loss register is that they come in at a point of sale. So the current holder has already somehow severed their emotional link with the artwork and they're thinking of it in monetary terms. It's not like the art loss register comes into your sitting room and say, Russ, that painting above your mantelpiece that you love dearly and that gives you joy every day of the week. We want that back. (laughs) You've already put it on the market. You're thinking of it as money. And they say, well, we can get you more money. We can add value by resolving its history, we make it more attractive for a conscientious buyer and certainly for an art investor. Are you willing to share some of these gains with the original owner? And the chances are, if it's put like that to you, you probably will. If somebody sues you, you're going to get super defensive about it. So it's, it's a difference of, of, of approach. That works really well. So the Art Loss Register gave you access to all this information. Uh, you do raise issues at times in the book about times that they may have overstepped and damaged their own reputation through a, a decision, a strategic decision they had to make. A, a lot of the book involves you know, Julian Radcliffe's, um, the, the founder and director, his sense of what will be effective in a, in a very ambiguous legal situation. Uh, how did that feel to you when you were writing the book? And uh, is the Outlets Register going to go forward without someone like uh, Julian Randolph Radcliffe at the helm of it? Yeah, it's a hugely controversial company. And uh, it's, it's constantly being held to account by the media as well. And the, the idea of this Julian Radcliffe figure is very often um, likened to, to sort of a James Bond type character uh, because he, he, he operates um, uh, yeah, on, 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 on the margins of, of, of where people feel, feel comfortable. And he built that company in in a period of of, of, of norm change. So this is the nineteen nineties, you get all these debates about Nazi looted art and uh, a little later antiquities, blood antiquities, terrorist funding, etc. So social norms are, are, are changing and he says he, he he creates this due diligence product for the market and pushes it onto an opaque market that's really quite comfortable with, 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 with all these cozy relations. And you can't, I can't think of, of any successful non-entrepreneurs that are not controversial. They, they, they all are. I mean, that's challenging norms is what 
it's the definition of being controversial. And yes, I mean, he does, he, he does occasionally do things that with hindsight he probably wouldn't do again. I find that, I find that interesting. Um, he's a rational actor, I think, with um, making decisions, sometimes just from gut feelings. Um, but he doesn't persist. He's got skin in the game, as you would say. If, if, if he feels and he'll realise that something is harming his, his reputation, he won't try it again. And yeah, it, 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 it is a world where you, you fiercely have to, to, to guard your reputation. And if you do take a risk, if you do stick your neck out, then you better be right. So you better be proved right in court eventually. Um, but yeah, it, it, it was, it was very interesting. I mean, I was, I was, I was critical as well as intrigued, as well as admiring. And I think that come, comes across in the book as well. One thing we didn't make clear is that they are not doing this out of the goodness. It's not a public service. So how do they make their money? What pays Jillian Radcliffe's uh, uh, air, airplane budget? He does a lot of flying around the world, often fruitlessly, <laughs> as you'll read in the book if you, if you look at it. Uh, how do they make their money? Yeah. So and how, many, how big is their staff, roughly? Um, about 25, okay. 25, 30 people fluctuates as well. I'm not sure how much show uh, has got through this, uh, the, the, the pandemic. Um, but yeah, so there's this private governance for private profit. So people pay to register and the insurers initially bankrolled, um, the, uh, the, the art loss register, um, so that they could register their art losses from, from the previous decades. Now the main income is from search income. So everyone, everyone who wants to search either has to pay a one-off fee or they have to, they, they can subscribe for however many dozens, hundreds or thousands of artworks they want checking every year. They do this for art fairs as well because art fairs don't want to be seen to be selling uh, stolen goods either. And then thirdly, they get some money from, from recovery fees and from, um, uh, location fees. So you can either pay a location fee if you just let the art loss register tell you where your artwork is, or you pay a recovery fee if you want to use their services to get um, get the picture or, or, or the artwork back, and that would be a, a percentage of its value. Um, over time, the main income streams shift. So they start off with the uh, with with insurance money effectively um then they go through a period where they go rather aggressively um uh, for for the recoveries and um that doesn't always go well some of them end in tears but there're also a few windfalls that then keep the company afloat and i would say only in the last 5 10 years or so has it become a stable company that just works on the search incomes so yes i do think it is, it is now sustainable. But as I was writing the book and as I could see money going down the drain in an alarming way in, in several of the stories, I was, I kept thinking, is this a toy or is this an institution? But it's the norm change and, 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 and these, these, these adventure stories are, are very much a part of 
changing the dynamics and changing the norms and due diligence that was absolutely necessary to get to the point where they're now. One of the incredible things about it is, is of course, that what keeps the Art Laws Register honest is their reputation and their concern to maintain that reputation. In the movie version, there would come a temptation so large that they might consider jeopardizing that reputation. It's an, it's an interesting example when there's so little competition, right? So it's a private entity. It comes into existence to improve a set of – to allow a set of transactions to take place with more confidence than they had taken place before. And their trust in them relies on what they would forfeit if they were to sacrifice that trust. And yet it's possible that that gets tested. Uh, as I said, if, if I were to make a movie about it, you know, I'd call it the, uh, the art loss database <laughs> instead of the art loss yeah. register where the founder would have some face some dilemma. Um, so that's just if you want to comment on that. I, I don't know if you're conf- you have a conflict of interest on this or not. I think I think I think the art loss register is publishing your book. Is that is that correct? That is that is correct. Yes. So they gave me access to their archive, and um, as it wasn't clear whether that was going to be an economics book, I think it is now. For um, sure. But at first, it was just a collection of adventure stories that I wanted to to to, to analyze in, in, in detail. Um, we, we didn't go for a university publisher. Um, Yes, there are always these temptations in the art in the art market, and um, you could say when 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 Christie sold the last Leonardo, um, that was one of those points where, where you thought, well, did they stake their reputation here on, on on something that they ought not to have done? But then you look at the sales brochure in detail, and you find that they've basically put all the information out there. So it went for total disclosure. They just didn't hold anything back. You think, okay, this was this was this was calculated, uh, calculated risk. Um, I can't really see at the moment that there would be anything big enough for them to jeopardise their reputation. But yeah, it is. It 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 it, it is. It is always. It, it is always possible. Um, it's it's a it's a monopoly, but it's a contestable monopoly. Um, there there are people always on their tail. So, an alternative to the art loss register, of course, is blockchain. Yeah, and then you got really good provenances, rather than. It's really a shortcut. The art loss register is not a complete provenance. It just says, at the moment, nobody's looking for it. But somebody might register it within the next three months, and then you've got a problem. But at the moment, nobody's looking for it, and therefore you are buying it in, in, in good faith. Um, but, yeah, there have been other art loss databases. And uh, at the moment, the way they're, they're doing it, so they're, they're using real people to um, match paintings or artworks with the photograph that they're given by the owner. So you can, you can see that somebody's going to come in and say, I'm going to use artificial intelligence. I'm going to revolutionize this. So it's a contestable monopoly. And, and I 
do think that has kept them on their toes. They've, they've had to see off a bit of opposition in the past. And it's a survivor. <laughs> My guest today has been Anya Shortland. Her book is Lost Art. Anya, thanks for being part of Econ Talk. You're very welcome. It's great to talk to you again. This is Econ Talk, part of the Library of Economics and Liberty. For more Econ Talk, go to econtalk.org, where you can also comment on today's podcast and find links and readings related to today's conversation. The sound engineer for Econ Talk is Rich Goyette. I'm your host, Russ Roberts. Thanks for listening. Talk to you on Monday.